0: Welcome to the Central Baptist Victoria podcast. Today, we begin a series on the Ten Commandments that explores why they are important and why they matter in life today. Let's jump right into today's message. This morning's scripture reading is coming from Exodus chapter 19. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai, and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priest who approached the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain And set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall know, you shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: I am sure that many of you have flown out of Victoria, either on business or maybe going on vacation. And you know that when you slowly taxi from where you get on the plane and you weave your way around the, earth, the, the different lines and you get to the end of the runway... And your seatbelts are fastened, and then you hear the engines begin really to wind up and speed up. And you know that in the next few minutes, you got to get to 30,000 feet. That's exactly where I am this morning. I'm the pilot. And we have to get to 30,000 feet this morning. So I hope you can fasten your seatbelts, be ready to go as we start a new series based on the Old Testament, the reading they just read to us this morning. A couple of weeks ago, as I was introducing myself with you as a church, I said that I believe that every message has a takeaway. At least one thing that God will kind of poke us and say, that's what you need this morning. So over the next 30, 35 minutes, you need to listen to God's voice. and say, what is the takeaway for this morning? Let me start by painting two very human pictures. You may find yourself in one of them. Imagine you have a young child who just recently started school in the neighborhood, the kindergarten or grade one. And so you start walking them to school week after week, teaching them where to cross the road, always watch for the don't walk light, reminding them again and again not to talk to strangers. And then one day they say to you, "Mummy," because it's often mummies who do that job, Mommy i 'm big enough now I can walk by myself, don 't come with me, or don't follow me. you ever had that? And as they head off down the road by themselves, you open you pray that they remember everything you told them. Cross to the lights, wait for cars, wait for the walk sign don 't talk to strangers. or maybe this is in your family you've experienced a 17, 18-year-old finished school, and they said, we've saved up some money, and we'd like to go to Europe for a year. A couple, about a month ago, our 17-year-old granddaughter announced that she was leaving um, home, and she was leaving to go to France to study for a couple of years. So off to university or whatever it is. And so you kind of get them to the airport again and you, you hug them and you kiss them goodbye and then you go on your way home. And as you drive home, you just hope and pray so that they will remember everything you've tried to teach them for the last 17 or 18 years about personal safety. Watch out for strangers. And they're no longer under your eye in your home. And every day as you see the plane rise out of the sky... He just prayed that they would be safe. So as our little kids head off to school and our young adults head off to Europe or whatever, the world is full of new experiences, for confusing voices and new pressures, and above all, strangers for whom they have to be on their guard. Now that was a scene 3,500 years ago. The nation that was to become known as Israel had been slaves in Egypt. And then through a series of powerful, miraculous events, God set them free and forged them into the nation. On the top of Mount Sinai, God forged them into this people that he would call his people, his nation. The Lord reminds them what he have done in Exodus. You see what I did to Egypt, how I carried you in eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And now if you will obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations of the earth, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a holy people. Now ahead of them is a promise of a new land, a land flowing with milk and honey, Water from wells they would not have to dig. Fruit from trees that they would not have to plant. And if you know the story, it's a promise that is going to be delayed for about 40 years. As they wander around the wilderness. But that's another story for another time. And in this new land, when they eventually get there, in addition to all its benefits, they will hear the voices of strange gods they will seek to seduce them away from that one true God they will feel the pressure to be conformed and shaped by strange customs they will face the pressures of their sons and daughters to intermarry how will they live out of the distinctive characteristics of being God's people they're going to be aliens in a foreign land how will they maintain their uniqueness how will they stay safe So God gives them a facts of life talk on this mountain. We call it the Ten Commandments of Decalogue, which simply means the ten words. Understand that God has given them to a people that he has just redeemed. And so this Decalogue is not a list of ten rules to make life awkward or old-fashioned. Rather, it's the way in which the spiritual uniqueness of Israel, her ethical, moral life as a nation, her separateness vis-a-vis the the culture of the surrounding nations will be broadcast loud and clear. Israel is going into a polytheistic culture. That's Canaan. They've just come from one, Egypt. So they will need to learn what it means for a redeemed people to live like a redeemed people. And they receive these these rules for holy living so that they can live like the people of God in an ungodly land. If we give the Ten Commandments to our culture today, most of them would say they're old-fashioned. They're irrelevant. They don't really apply. Well, it would make us generally nice people who don't shop on Sundays, who don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery. But rather, in the life of the people of God, they are to demonstrate the reality that there can be cosmos, that means order, in the midst of social chaos, or disorder. So I think our average culture today would just kind of write them off. I would also say to you, I think the average evangelical Christian would also say, we don't need the Ten Commandments. Why? Because we live under the grace of God. These are rules. They're in the Old Testament. They don't apply to us anymore. Grace is free, but it is not cheap. God calls us to be holy people just as he is holy. And so these 10 words, as we look at, define and describe how God's people should live out the experience of grace in their lives. They are the expression Of his saving grace to his people. You need to get that. They're the transcript of his holiness. Which is to be reflected. In the ethical life of the people of God. It is a charter of conduct. For people who are already redeemed. By his grace. And if you move from the Old Testament. Exodus 19. Into the New Testament. First Peter. You find the very same words. Applied to us today. First Peter says. You are a chosen people. A royal priesthood To abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live good lives, says Peter among the pagans. You get the picture? But do you understand that we are now the aliens and strangers living in the world? So, how should we live? Let me ask you how, as a culture, did we get to where we are today? How did we get to where we are today? I need to take you back into history and a little fast lesson in sociology and philosophy and a few other things. For many reasons, often traced back to the conversion of Constantine, an emperor, Christianity had a special and favored status in world history. We call this period Christendom. Now, certainly there were ups and downs, There were dark periods on the historical stage. Christians did not do everything right. We know that. But Christianity was, for the most part, the dominant force in our world. It was perhaps the greatest force in shaping Western civilization. It launched social change, geographic exploration. It was the catalyst for hospitals, education, and word and indeed, Christianity made a difference in the world. If you're kind of around my age, you can remember when there was prayer and religious education in schools. Do you remember that? There was general respect for law enforcement, law and order. The Bible in society was generally accepted without question, even by people with no personal faith. The judicial system was established on a Judeo-Christian basis. And I remember growing up in Glasgow in the mid-40s into the 50s and 60s, you did not shop on Sundays. Well, a simple reason was all the shops were closed. There were little corner stores where you could maybe go buy bread and milk if you ran out of those. But you hope nobody saw you in those stores. You remember that? That's Christendom, not Christianity. But Christendom, I'm not trying to say that all of society was Christian, not at all. But there was what I would call a moral imprint that came from the tradition of the Christian faith. Then starting in Europe about 1890, and in North America about 1930, a very quiet but powerful shift started. It was a shift in truth, truth. The titanic places are underneath the social order of our society began to shift. Initially, these movements were slight, inconsequential. They were very slowly. Whereas today we're experiencing social change and moral disruption at an enormous pace. Let me give you six fast headings to let you understand where these changes were rooted. I call them broad brushstrokes. This is kind of philosophy 101. But it's vital to help us understand where we've come from and where we are today. We have moved from principles to pragmatism. We have moved largely from being people whose lives were based on principles to people whose lives are shaped by pragmatism. Pragmatism simply means whatever works, whatever is expedient. Truth is whatever works, whatever brings our desired results. In pragmatism, truth is relativized. The real conflict between Christianity and pragmatism is the conflict between what is right and also what is expedient. When we give up principle, we give up from being people who have a moral compass to people who simply go whichever way the wind blows. We've moved again from relatives to, to, sorry, from absolutes to relativism. We've moved from the idea that there's things that are fixed and true to relativism. That leads us into the quicksand of situation ethics. We've moved largely from community to individualism. Number three, the thread of community that has woven cities and groups together has largely been broken as we move towards greater individual, individualism. So in a culture which, where everyone's position is true... No one's position really matters. There's a very dark drumbeat. One line that you find, I think, 12 times in the book of Judges. It simply says, And every person did that which was right in their own sight. That's largely what we have today. We have moved from service to selfishness. The idea of service is eroded as consumerism or selfishness takes over. Before we get involved, we want to know, what's in it for me? What do I get out of this? We've moved largely from sacrifice to hedonism. For many people, now in North America, the cause is now the gospel of hedonism, which is the word for pleasure, and particularly self-pleasure. Paul encountered those group in Acts chapter 17. And so when you combine selfishness and hedonism, we are the first society for which we have so much to live with and so little to live for. And we've moved also from monotheism, that there's one God, to pluralism, polytheism, that there's many gods. As a society, Canada is functionally pluralistic we face something of an oxymoron in our national personality. The introduction to the Charter of Rights says, whereas Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God, the problem is that there's really been no practical way to define what that really means. The Charter then goes on to say, everyone has the following fundamental freedoms. The freedom of conscience and religion, a freedom of thought, belief, opinion, and expression. The result is that makes Canada functionally polytheistic in religion, we believe in many gods, and pluralistic in ethics. What this has meant for us socially and culturally is that for many years other world religions such as Buddhism and Hinduism and philosophical truths like the New Age movement were always at the fringe of society. Now they have moved from being at the fringe of society in Canada, from looking through the doorway, as it were, to being at the table. Where sometimes you have to wonder is Christianity even got a seat here? We are experiencing the almost complete abandonment of truth in our cultural lives. These cumulative effects mean that we are now living in a land which is filled with the strange voices of other gods. We are walking in a land which is dangerous and seductive to us. We're living in a land as Christians in which we are no longer of the title landowners and the spiritual residents. We have become what Peter says, our aliens and strangers. We are up to our waist in a swamp of secular thinking. And I think today Dostoevsky is right. He says, "If God is dead, then everything is permissible." That's why we're in such trouble in moral and ethical issues, just as sexuality, abortion, euthanasia and so on. And so the Ten Commandments are the practical challenge of how God's people, the church today, holy people, are to live especially in a land which is filled with strange gods and ungodly practices, whether you be in Cana or Canada. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so God's starting point for his people was to know who he is. It's the same for us. We need to have today a tight orthodox grip on who God truly is. Orthodoxy means straight thinking. And so we need to have straight thinking about who this God is. And we need to meet him afresh in the fire on the mountains. And hear his voice going louder and louder. And so in Exodus chapter 20, God spoke these words to the people. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and you shall have no other God's before me. His is the only voice that we are to hear. So just as we're called this morning to hold on to this orthodox crisp, grasp of who God is, we need to start there again. Let me give you again some brief, what I often just call headings. He is the God who reveals himself. He reveals himself in creation. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans chapter one, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, that means his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that people are without excuse. The problem is, as we'll see next Sunday, that our, worship, our, our culture worships creation, they don't look beyond that to the Creator. Our God reveals himself to us in Christ. Everything that we need to know about God is packed into the life and heart and ministry of Jesus Christ. In him, he reveals his light, his love, his patience. That's why Jesus says, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. When you look to me, you're looking at the Father. He reveals himself to us if we will learn to look each day in our lives. We need to learn to open our eyes and see the hand of God in our daily lives. Elizabeth Barrett Browning has a lovely little sonnet in which she says, Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush is aflame with God. But only those who see take off their shoes. The rest sit down and pluck blackberries. He's the God who redeems. The history of Israel starts on that Passover night. When God redeemed his people through the shed blood of a lamb. And think about this. As they headed out into the darkness of Egypt that night father's leading their his wife and his wife leading her children. Do you know what they did? They risked everything, everything, on the smear of blood on a doorpost. That's what they did. He's the God who redeems us from sin and death all through the boldness of the cross and redemption, he forgives us. Colossians says he has rescued us from the dominion of of darkness. He's brought us into the kingdom of the Son, whom he loves, and whom we have redemption, freedom through the forgiveness of sins. I've been a pastor for 54 years. I buried everything from little babies that made me cry to my best friend, to my parents, my mother and father. Do you know what we do? Every time we lower a casket of a loved one into the ground, we risk everything. We risk everything on the blood of the cross. He's the God who reconciles us. Colossians says... Now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we read that three or four weeks ago when Scott was speaking to us. Paul says that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And to us, he's committed also the message of reconciliation which means bringing people back to God, bringing people back to themselves, bringing people back into wholeness. Remember the story of the prodigal son? A young man who went away and squandered his life for a while, blew all of his money. And then there's a a line there that I just love. It says, he came to himself. It means he reconciled himself back to God and himself again. And remember the story of that son coming home. The, the entire success of that story lies in the nature and the character of the waiting father. Who watches and waits for his son coming home. The truth for us is that God is the waiting father. Waiting for us, each one of us, to come home. And he runs to welcome us and orders a banquet to be served. Puts a new ring on our finger and new clothes of righteousness on our shoulders. The crucial point, folks, about God is this, that what we believe about God right now, his nature, his character, his activity, shapes how we live. Many people see God as some kind of white-bearded Father Christmas figure who gives us annual gifts if we're good enough children. Last week, just visiting with some folk at coffee. He's the big guy upstairs, they call him. Others see him as their own God, which was the sin of Eve. He will be his God. Others have no God at all, and therefore no moral compass for their lives. Whatever we believe and think God is, is how we live. So our view of God, orthodoxy, straight thinking, directs our lives. That's why the Decalogue, this facts of life talk to his people, begins by calling us to have and to hold a tight orthodox grasp on who he is. He is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the Shema, Shema is the, the Hebrew verb meaning to hear. We're told in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, Shema, Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And it tells us you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today will be on your hearts. And so you see the point, God's call to his people in every age, in every time is to be radically different from its prevailing culture in its values, in its standards, and in its lifestyle. That is echoed all through the scriptures, through the Old Testament, through the New Testament. And it all hangs on an essential truth, which is having a right understanding of who God is. The more the more that the moral stage of our culture darkens and becomes distorted. The more important it will be for God's people to stand in grace and to let grace shine and to live out the grace of God as his people. The Ten Commandments call us to a radical countercultural lifestyle as the people of God. You got that? The Ten Commandments call us to a radical, counter-cultural lifestyle as the people of God. We have um, three children. We have eight grandchildren. And when I think about our children, and mostly our grandchildren these days, and the culture they're, they're growing up in, I'm almost, almost terrified for them. Whether they learn in school, or they're taught at a young age about sexuality, about morality. And i was reminded as I was preparing this a couple of weeks ago of the well-known story of David fighting Goliath when he goes out to fight Goliath. And if you know the story, it tells you in the lines that King Saul puts his best armor on God. He's the king. He probably had the best armor of anybody in the country. And so Saul puts his armor on David. Gives him his helmet, puts it on his head. Gives him his breastplate and shield, puts it on his body. But do you remember what David does? David says he can't walk in them because they're too heavy for him. So what does he do? He takes them off and he goes and finds five stones to go and fight Goliath. I have been a Christian for almost 60 years. I have four or five, can't remember. I have four or five degrees in philosophy and theology. And you know what? I would love to put these things over my grandchildren's heads and over their hearts to protect them and keep them safe. I would give anything to be able to do that. And so each one, Caleb and Kenton, I forget their names, sorry. (laughs) I can't even remember their birthdays. I'd love to put these things over their heads to protect them and keep them safe. But I have to realize that someone who's been a Christian for 60 years, they would be far too heavy for them. They wouldn't be able to walk in them. And they have to say, Grandpa, thank you that they have to go and find in their own way in their own time, their own five stones to fight their own giants. And that's hard for us. I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning. I often wake up before I'm preaching. And I had an idea in my mind. And between 3 o'clock this morning and 10.30, I didn't know how to pull it off. So you're just going to have to imagine this. Imagine if you'd come in this morning and under every seat in the church and wherever you are at home, under every seat, there's a little bag. And in that bag are five stones. And you've got to go and open them up. And you know what they're for? Those five stones are for people that you love. Children and grandchildren, nieces, nephews, cousins, whoever they are, and you love them and you give them their five stones, you know why? Because they have to go and fight their own giants in today's culture, in today's world. And your job and my job, the only job we have, but it's the hardest of all our job is to pray for them, to pray for them, that they would go and fight their stone, their five fight their giants on their own. We live in changing and we live in challenging times. They are not times for the faint-hearted or the fearful. We are again like Israel, living in a land which is filled with strange voices, seductive sounds. What can we do for them? We can pray. We stand with this one. The worship team is going to come forward. But in the midst of all these strange and seductive voices, can I say to you this morning that there is another voice that calls to us. He speaks out of the fire in the mountain. His voice raises above the clamor and the din of our culture. And he says to us, I and I alone am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of darkness, out of sin, and out of death. I am the God who stooped down and met you in grace at the cross. Worship no other gods before me. Who is he? He is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who calls to us, I and I alone am the one and only. His light still shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not snuff it out. And we are to live in such a way that our lives and our land would be filled with His glory. Who is this God? He's the Ancient of Days.
0: If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Podcast.